WORT Summer Festival is coming. Join us at Warner Park on Sunday, May 21st from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. We'll have a wide variety of live music. We'll also have food and craft vendors, an arts activity area, and plenty of space in beautiful Warner Park. Find out more information at wortfm.org. See you there. This is Gene Delcourt and Rachel Fields with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Two train cars that were part of a 10-car freight train derailment were secured last Friday as they floated down the Mississippi River in western Wisconsin, according to the Associated Press. The two freight containers involved did not contain hazardous material, but an absorbent boom was put in place on the river just in case. The derailment that threw 10 freight cars and two locomotive cars off the track near DeSoto, Wisconsin, is still being investigated to determine the cause. The crash that caused the derailment resulted in minor injuries to four people, all railroad employees. Julie Glancy, a Democratic member of the Wisconsin Elections Commission, announced her intention to resign from the commission after serving on it for seven years, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Glancy was one of the original appointees on the commission after it was created in 2016 by Governor Walker, and she brought her expertise as a former county clerk to the position. The Wisconsin Election Commission is a bipartisan agency that is tasked with providing guidance to county clerks and maintaining the statewide voter registration database. Glancy said that she was stepping down to make way for someone with more recent experience administering elections in Wisconsin. Republican state legislatures began circulating a bill today that would allow 14-year-olds to serve alcohol to seated customers at restaurants. Current Wisconsin law says that only those 18 and up are allowed to serve alcohol. If passed, Wisconsin will be the only state that allows employees under the age of 16 to serve alcohol, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. The Republicans claim that the law would ease workforce shortages issue workforce shortage issues in the restaurant industry, excuse me. The University of Wisconsin-Madison announced today that Charles Lee Isbell Jr. would be the university's new provost. The provost is the university's chief academic officer and serves as the second-ranking leader of the university under the chancellor. Isbell previously served as the dean of the College of Computing at the Georgia Institute of Technology and has a background in computer science, reaffirming UW-Madison's commitment to improving the School of Computer, Data, and Information Sciences. Isbell will begin his new role on August 1st. The city of Madison reports that it arrested 44 people over the weekend at the Mifflin Street Block Party, mostly for alcohol-related offenses. The yearly party, which is not endorsed by the university nor sanctioned by the city, attracted more than 10,000 people and required the shutdown of multiple streets and the attention of more than 200 police officers. Last year, three partygoers were injured following a porch collapse at the annual event. There were no reported injuries during this year's festivities. The Lake Monona Waterfront Ad Hoc Committee scored the three proposals the committee received for the redevelopment of the Lake Monona Waterfront along John Nolan Drive. The committee favored the design submitted by the Sasaki design firm, with 12 out of the 13 members giving it the highest score in their review. The design submitted would include a new boardwalk as well as a canopy walk for viewing the lake and possibly a new nature center and had also won the public survey for best design submission, according to the Capital Times. 
The committee now has several days to review the other committee members' comments before they decide whether to move forward with the design at a meeting on May 10th. A black bear was sighted on Madison's west side on Saturday as it made its way through several residential neighborhoods before finally falling asleep in a tree. The city's planning on letting the bear follow its natural inclination and hopefully it'll leave the residential areas on its own. But the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources could sedate the bear as a last resort, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Madison Police Department has asked the people to avoid the bear and bring outdoor pets or food inside. And now on to today's top stories. Last month, Democratic State Representative and former Dane County Supervisor Sheila Stubbs was named the new head of Dane County Human Services. But after weeks of harsh rhetoric from Stubbs supporters, a county committee voted against her confirmation last Thursday. WORT producer Nate Wegehout has more. County Executive Joe Parisi named Representative Stubbs as the new head of Dane County Human Services in April. As the county's largest department, the incoming director would be responsible for about a $240 million budget and hundreds of employees. The path forward to confirming Stubbs, though, must go through several committees and the Dane County Board as a whole, and it hasn't been an easy path. Last week, a Dane County committee voted to unanimously oppose her appointment after some supervisors faced insults and racial slurs from those supporting Stubbs's confirmation. That comes after Stubbs has waffled on whether she would resign her job in the state assembly if confirmed to the office. Initially, the representative indicated in a speech to her congregation that she would not resign, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Later last week, in a brief email to constituents, she indicated that she would resign. This led to a heated meeting of the county's Health and Human Needs Committee last Thursday, a committee the representative once chaired while supervisor on the Dane County Board. Ultimately, the committee unanimously voted against the confirmation of Stubbs. Their reasoning, the Wisconsin State Journal reports, was over the language Stubbs used leading up to Thursday's meeting and a lack of transparency over how she was chosen for the role. Supporters of Representative Stubbs, including Executive Parisi, have maintained that this confirmation process has faced increased scrutiny due to Stubbs being a black woman. Thursday's meeting lasted for over five hours, with members of Stubbs' church calling for her to be confirmed for the position, wearing shirts reading, Confirm Sheila Stubbs. During public comment, Stubbs supporters attacked the supervisors, with Stubbs' mother calling board president Patrick Miles a, quote, racist and a weasel. Several black county board members were called racial slurs both during and before Thursday's meeting. District 15 Supervisor April Kigea is not a member of the committee that met on Thursday, though she was in attendance when a Stubbs supporter called her a racial slur. Kigea says that during the meeting, Stubbs would not condone the use of the racial slur. I asked questions first, and my very first question to her was, what is your opinion on the rhetoric of your supporters directed uh, directly at me and members of Black Caucus? Sheila then replied that she doesn't know what I'm talking about. I indicated how it literally happened 20 minutes ago um, while she was in the room. Supervisor Kigea says that Supervisor Dana Pelabon was also called a racial slur by the same supporter just days before. In a Twitter post yesterday, Supervisor Pelabon said, quote, Your silence is complicity in the abuse and harassment me and my black colleagues on the county board have endured for doing our jobs, end quote. All but eight members of the Dane County Board released a statement on Saturday calling the comments unacceptable and that the board will not tolerate abuse. 
Earlier today, in a separate statement, Executive Parisi also rebuked the use of the epithet, saying that, quote, the words directed at Supervisor Kigea by a member of the public were unacceptable and wrong, end quote. But Kigea says that she's faced harassment outside of the meetings as well, including from one of Stubbs's church's top members. Her deacon tagged me in a Facebook post in which he stated that I was like leading the race card against her, which makes no sense because we're both black women, made note of how I left the meeting early and how I was like ducking out on voting, which Again, I'm not a voting member, so I wouldn't have voted. Kigea says that she later called Stubbs to address both the Facebook post and the racial slur. And while Stubbs did not apologize, she did say that the rhetoric was wrong. Representative Stubbs did not return a request for comment today. She is one of four finalists for the position, which also included the current interim director of Dane County Human Services and two state officials, one of whom is also a Madison Alder. The position, which pays upwards of $101,000 a year, received a total of 21 applicants. Another committee responsible for recommending hiring for the position is ongoing tonight. Dane County's Personnel and Finance Committee began meeting at 5.30 tonight to deliberate on the issue. And the matter will go before the full Dane County Board at their meeting this Thursday. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wookiehout. UW Oshkosh has been building a relationship with the startup Agra Energy since 2017. This public-private partnership now looks to scale up a process involving farm animal waste and biofuels. Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection has more. The University of Wisconsin Oshkosh and a California company are now operating Wisconsin's first commercial facility to turn manure into fuel for trucks and jets. The project started six years ago when Agra Energy was looking for waste streams for renewable biofuels. After an initial pilot run, construction began on a new facility last fall with production getting underway in the first half of this year. The process produces diesel and jet fuel, but not gasoline. The university's Kenny Johnson says it goes hand-in-hand hand with an environmental approach. We obviously wouldn't want to produce this methane gas and then just burp it into the atmosphere. And biogas also helps mitigate emissions that would otherwise have escaped from landfills or manure lagoons and contribute to the greenhouse gases that produce climate change. The new facility was strategically placed in Wisconsin because of the state's untapped biodigester market, with Johnson noting the state has a ton of farms. As the first such facility in Wisconsin, Johnson expects some growing pains to commercialize the fuel with a competitive market out there. He says people need to realize that there is value to biogas and that buyers are needed for it. What we're doing is producing fuel and showing that their process could work on a commercial scale. Agri-officials say the goal for the new commercial facility is to make about 1,800 gallons of fuel per day. They say the partnership also provides hands-on experience for UWO students to learn about biogas systems. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. This story was produced with original reporting from Anastasia Parami for Great Lakes Echo. Newly hired assistant public defenders and assistant district attorneys in Wisconsin are currently making around $56,000 a year, an increase of just about 15% over the past decade. Compared to the median pay of all lawyers in Wisconsin, around $115,000 a year, and you get what you see today, a lack of public attorneys throughout all of Wisconsin. 
That's the subject of the newest report from the Wisconsin Policy Forum, a nonpartisan independent policy research organization. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Ari Brown, senior researcher with the forum, about the new report. Now, Ari, just to start broadly here, what did your report look at and what did you find? Yeah, so I think, you know, in kind of the context of the state budget that's currently being debated, um, there are a number of proposals. Uh, I, I think kind of the big underlying theme of this year's state budget was that there is a, a very large, uh, about $7 billion surplus that the state has to work with. Obviously, both parties want to do different things with that $7 billion. And, and you know, I, in an ideal fiscal scenario, you're not spending down all of that. But uh, it generated a lot of ideas and thinking from from the governor when, you know, his budget was published a few months ago. So we were really interested in taking a look at a lot of different facets of that budget. One of them that we noticed was uh, just in general that these two offices, the uh, district attorneys and the office of the state public defender, both saw boosts to their budget. And, you know, I think the the kind of broader theme of public safety um, has been one that's been on a lot of people's minds over the last couple of years. But, you know, uh, sometimes the focus can be a lot on the uh, at the municipal level on things like police and, and the way that certain crimes are policed. But this is kind of an issue that you've seen emerge over the last couple of years as well, is that, you know, once these cases are, you know, being processed, processed through the courts, there has been kind of this growing backlog that that is generated through just the court system not being able to process these cases quickly enough. And and we've been hearing over the last, you know, year or so that a lot of individuals who work, uh, you know, either with the Office of the State Public Defender um, or as an assistant district attorney around the state, there's a lot of labor issues. So we were really interested in digging into that. And what we found generally was that these individuals are not compensated really uh, at the level that is anywhere near their peers uh, in, in the private industry. Um, just to give you one quick number, um, we found that for assistant district attorneys and public defenders, the current median salary is around $75,000 a year relative to the um, all Wisconsin lawyers. In 2021, that number was about $115,000. So that's about a $40,000 gap, which is creating a lot of issues right now when it comes to turnover retention uh, of those individuals that, uh, you know, as cases build up, especially due to the pandemic, the amount of churn that is happening in some of these offices is contributing even more to that backlog. Now, digging into both of these offices individually a little bit, let's start off with uh, district attorney's offices here in Wisconsin. Uh, What did you find there in regards to uh, their pay and what that sort of turnover looks like? Yeah, so it was, uh, you know, it's a little bit difficult to get numbers at the state level for items like uh, turnover and, and retention. These offices work a little bit differently than the Office of the State Public Defender, where in general, district attorneys are housed at the county level, but the state is responsible for paying salaries and benefits. So you see, you know, it's kind of a, a cross-state-county issue. But just in general, what we've seen there is that um, over time, the median uh, case age for disposition, uh, resolution of, of some of those cases has really increased. You know, from 2013 to 2021, the, the median age for uh, criminal felony cases has risen by almost 60%. The uh, median age for uh, misdemeanor disposition has increased almost 90%. So those are now taking anywhere from, you know, five, six months to, to nine, 10 months, um, really starting to, to increase. What we found in general was that 
it takes really about 15 years for the average uh, annualized salary for some of these individuals to, to reach into the six digits. Uh, when I mentioned earlier that the, the kind of median for uh, lawyers statewide is already around $115,000, you know, we found that individuals with between 11 and 15 years of experience in 2021 made an average salary of about $82,000. So even with, you know, over a decade of experience in the office, those salaries just are not really competitive with what is broadly considered to be kind of the industry standard. We were able to get some data from the uh, Milwaukee County office um, that found that some of the highest years of turnover that have occurred since 2000 have all come within the last uh, six years or so. So they're experiencing quite a bit of churn. And that's all at the same time while, while you know, backlogs were developing due to the pandemic, due to kind of the slowdown in court. So it's kind of a snowballing of issues there. But um, one of the things that we found was that really the, the pay level right now is not really requisite with uh, what lawyers just statewide are making. And now moving on to public defenders, what did you find in there? Yeah, so a lot of similar trends there. You know, I think just to, to point some things out, we were able to find a, a national study that looks at what public defenders make in, uh, you know, like nationwide. Um, and obviously we have the Wisconsin data. So one of the things that we found was over the first couple of years of the job, Wisconsin public defenders generally make slightly more than the national average. But after you get to about four years of experience, um, that really diminishes. And then those disparities kind of increase the further and further you get along in, in terms of experience. So I think one of the numbers that really stood out to us was as of 2021, uh, public defenders in Wisconsin with between 11 to 15 years of experience make on average about $85,000 a year. Nationwide, public defenders with the same amount of experience in uh, 2022 made about $101,000. So that's a pretty significant difference, especially, you know, as, you know, backlogs and, and, and the, the job gets more difficult, not compensating those individuals, not only, you know, requisite with what individuals in this profession in Wisconsin are making, but not even requisite with what individuals in the same profession in other states are making. I think that can really snowball. I think the other big issue we saw when it comes to public defenders was, you know, for a lot of different reasons, but prim primarily due to the volume of cases and whenever a conflict of interest arises, there are a number of, you know, private attorneys around the state who will um, step up and do some public defender work. The state has a compensation level that it sets for those individuals. This is a pretty common practice, you know, across the U.S. But in Wisconsin, for a while, that was $40, which was the lowest in the country uh, for a very long time. That was raised to $70 in uh, 2020, which, you know, we don't have, a, you know, a similar kind of study to, to compare it to. But we have reason to believe that that is still a fairly low rate for, uh, you know, private attorneys doing public sector work uh, compared to other states. There is a proposal in uh, the governor's budget to raise that to $100 per hour. But that is another issue where you've seen the number of individuals who are certified to take public defender appointments from the private sector um, has declined. Uh, it was 940 individuals in January 2019. It is down to 772 uh, as of August 22. So I think that was another issue that really jumped off the page to us. And then what does that mean for specifically people who have been charged with a crime and are waiting to be assigned a public defender? Yeah, so I, I think it can mean a lot of different things. I mean, first and foremost, they might be waiting much longer now than they have uh, in the past when it comes to, you know, public defense and, and having their cases, you know, go through a fair and speedy trial. Um, that is a real issue that, that we're starting to see emerge. Um, but, you know, just in terms of being bogged down with, um, you know, all these other cases, I think one of the other things that, 
one of the other items that really jumped out, jumped out to us when it comes to public defenders is just the amount of video evidence that is becoming more and more a facet of this job. There was a survey that the Office of the State Public Defender did uh, of about 100 uh, public defense attorneys throughout the state that found that a majority said they spent at least six hours per week viewing video evidence. So almost, you know, one out of every five days of the work week, just viewing video evidence. So the the way that things like body cams and security footage um, have exploded in terms of, you know, their availability has really just added to the already large workload for public defenders. And it's just another one of these facets of the job that makes it all the more onerous and, and difficult and just really adds to these workloads. And we're running up against the clock here, but just real quick, we are talking about this because we are in budget season right now. So tell me about Governor Evers's budget proposals to address this issue. Yeah, so a lot of the big items here really would just change the way that compensation works. So the uh, the starting level uh, right now is set at $27.24 an hour. That would rise for both assistant uh, district attorneys and public defenders to $35 an hour, um, which would be a fairly significant wage increase. Uh, both offices would see, you know, some positions open up. That said, with the loss of some of the federal stimulus bills, like the American Rescue Plan Act, some positions that they've had temporarily will go away. So a lot of the position increases would account for that. But that compensation level is really a big one, as well as for the, uh, the Office of the State Public Defender, adding some positions around, you know, video evidence to just kind of account for the way that that has really picked up. Um, but I think the compensation level is really the, the big item there. And um, that will be one that we will certainly, as the policy forum, be paying attention to over the next couple months as the you know state budget really starts to develop. I've been talking with Ari Brown, senior researcher with the Wisconsin Policy Forum, about their newest report on public attorneys here in Wisconsin. Now you can read their full report online over at wispolicyforum.org. Ari, thank you so much for talking with me. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Gene Delcourt, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thank you for joining us. As the Madison Metropolitan School Board prepares for their annual budget, educators and staff within the district are sounding the alarm about pay cuts and layoffs putting an additional strain on already stretched teachers. On a May Day special of A Public Affair, host Douglas Hayes spoke with Madison Teachers Union President Michael Jones about the biggest concerns facing the educators in the district today. We're going to start with you giving us a little bit of the lay of the land in terms of working conditions and things Madison School, public school employees are talking about in schools this year. What issues are workers concerned about most? What are the general trends in working conditions that Madison public school employees have been talking about? I think it boils down to all of them are interconnected, right? So some of our biggest issues are safety and staffing and autonomy like those it kind of comes down to those three when it comes to safety we don't have enough staff to adequately support our schools so we are having a lot of situations where uh, scholars are without uh, special education support ESL or English language learners or multilingual learners are without bilingual resource teachers or bilingual resource specialists for translations. You know, whole classrooms, there are classes that have gone an entire year without a 
a certified classroom teacher and relying on subs if they can get subs, but we don't have enough substitutes. And what happens is everyone is stretched thin. Then all of a sudden, instead of just teaching your class, you're subbing for other classes during your prep period, which means you're losing your autonomy because you're not uh, having enough time to do the work that you need to do when you don't have scholars in front of you. And then we're also trying to do all this while our elementary staff are implementing two brand new uh, learning curriculums, um, one literacy, one science, with the prospect of that happening at the middle school level next year. So there's a lot of professional development that's happening or supposed to be happening, but we don't have the time to do it. So you're having people do more with less resources, with fewer supports, and now the district is offering far less money. They're offering a pay cut for for employees, and that's and that's uh, essentially the rate of inflation uh, set by the state is eight percent. They're offering us three point five percent, so less than half of that. Meaning that if you're a fifth year teacher, you're expected to make twenty four hundred dollars less uh, next year versus the rate of inflation. And we all know rent, gas food, utilities, those are not going down. We're hearing from people all over, all over the district, you know, their rents are going up $200, $300, $400 a month. Meanwhile, the district expects that they're going to retain them for a pay cut. But so what we're seeing then is an educator and worker exodus from MMSD. And that's been going on for the last couple of years where they're going out to the suburbs like Verona, Sun Prairie, Middleton, what have you, because they're being offered uh, higher salaries, more supports, and uh, general better working conditions because the buildings are newer. So, you know, when it's September or it's May and it's 100 degrees in your classroom and uh, your district or your building has never been air conditioned, you might all of a sudden begin thinking the grass is, is greener, which it not always is, but those are those are definitely things that our workers are seeing and then as a, as a result, because people are leaving, because they're feeling not valued, you know, because class sizes are going up as a result of that, you know, your and now your district says, hey, this is how much we value you. We want you to take less money. And we're also going to be cutting teacher and teacher assistant positions and positions all across the board. Meanwhile, we are going to maintain the same amount, relatively the same amount of administrators, district administrators, pulling six-figure salaries. Meanwhile, we're still going to get a lot of, hire a lot of six-figure consultants and people who don't know the community to come in and tell us what's wrong with our community, parachute in, tell us what's wrong, collect their check, and then get out of here. And then meanwhile, we're, we, uh, the workers are left holding the bag and, and uh, expecting to clean up the mess. So that's kind of the state of uh, our schools right now. We're very optimistic because our scholars are brilliant and amazing and our families are generally supportive and our staff is pretty fantastic. But we are in the prospect of losing quite a few of them and not being able to bring in other, <laughs> other talents because of just the environment all the way around within our school system, which is kind of a targeted approach from, you know, state and federal legislators who have spent their careers trying to underfund and defund public education. This is not a new thing. It's not even new with Scott Walker. It's something that's been going on, uh, whether you're talking Tommy Thompson, the QEO, 
whether you're talking about federal mandates and standardized testing like No Child Left Behind, uh, really cutting at the core of what education is supposed to be. You know, so you're just seeing a lot of people leaving, not enough people coming in. And meanwhile, the people that hurt the most from this are our kids. First of all, the proposal to cut staff at the schools, um, and you mentioned schools already being understaffed. What's the specific proposal, and what is MTI's response to that proposal and vision of what should be happening? So right now, the uh, budget that came out last Monday in terms of their preliminary budget, because the board doesn't vote on it mm-hmm. until June, is that it w- we would see roughly between 81 or 82 teacher positions being cut, uh, 66 to 67 educational assistant, so like special education aides, nursing assistants, those sort of jobs being cut, but only two district administrative positions being cut. So when I started in the district, we had two associate superintendents, and now we're we're in the double digits. I want to say somewhere between 12, 10 to 12 to 13, but don't quote me on that. But like that's that's the sort of like, OK, if you're going to say we have sh- we're going to have to all share the pain. I'm seeing some people share the pain more than others. What what the district is going to say is that, hey, the state has not given us any funding for the last couple of years. The Republican legislature has really stuck it to public schools. And that is true. It's a yes. And yes, the, the, the state has has stuck it to MMSD. And uh, they have been very irrational in how they've tried to attack public education. And the district is budgeting so conservatively, they have the funds and the reserves to uh, retain staff and to stabilize. But there's little interest in actual stability. There's more interest in putting that money towards shiny new objects like curriculum and curricula and consultants than it is on actual uh, the talent and the and the human beings that are actually teaching right as we speak or working with young people as we speak. So what MTI is advocating for is one, the board doesn't pass such a regressive budget until the state budget it, uh, kicks in in the summer. All in or you know our indication, our sources, what we've been hearing is that there is going to be an increase. It might not be what Governor Evers is budgeting for, demanding, but we public schools should be seeing at least some money, additional money. Also, we know our property taxes have gone up. I'm a homeowner in Madison. Believe it or not, Madison teachers live in Madison, and uh, my property taxes went up. I, I want to say my home value went up about forty thousand dollars the last assessment. So that means that we, our district should expect uh, more funds, but they don't take that into account. So what happens is there are huge, the April budget is very different than the budget that gets passed in October. That's finalized for the year. And there's usually tens of millions of dollars in difference. And what we're saying is hold off, give the people, you know, pay the people at the rate of inflation and hold out and because you know you're going to be getting more money in the fall. Don't pretend like you're going to be broke when you already, not only you have the money now, but you know you're going to have more money in the fall. That was a public affair host, Douglas Hayes, talking with Madison Teachers, Inc. President Michael Jones about the concerns facing educators in MMSD schools. You can hear the full interview online at wortfm.org. Happy May Day. This Saturday is the anniversary of a successful spontaneous strike 
of 400 African-American women tobacco workers over miserable pay and working conditions. They were part of a victorious struggle that unionized all Richmond-area tobacco workers. They won the eight-hour day, union recognition, and respect in 1937. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. This Saturday, May 6th, is the anniversary of the beginning of a successful spontaneous strike of 400 African-American tobacco workers in Ian Vaughn over miserable wages and working conditions. They were part of a successful strike wave across Richmond, Virginia, aided by the CIO and the Southern Negro Youth Congress, SNYC. The women averaged $3 a week, sometimes working over 80 hours a week in cramped conditions with tobacco dust coating the air and their lungs. They won increased wages, an 8-hour day, 40-hour week, and collective bargaining recognition. These strikes were the first in the tobacco industry since 1905. The African-American women were typically given the dirtiest and lowest-paid jobs. This was certainly true with tobacco factory work where black women had the unpleasant and demanding job of destemming tobacco leaves by hand. The stemmers were the lowest paid workers in the industry and their wages typically depended on the amount they could stem in a day. As the quality of tobacco leaf rose and fell with the seasonal cycle, so did their pay. The bosses often ruled with an iron fist. The hiring process was reminiscent of slave auctions. Foreman lined us up against the wall, recalled one tobacco stemmer, and chose the sturdy, robust ones. Once hired, the women were subject to verbal and physical abuse. The buildings, too, had not changed much since slavery days. The unventilated rooms were full of tobacco dust, making it difficult to breathe. The tobacco was dirty and sticky, especially in the early months of the growing season before it had time to dry. The stemmers found solidarity in their plight and referred to each other as sisters. The bosses, though, were cocky and believed no labor union would try to organize workers in the tobacco industry. By 1937, Louise Mama Harris had worked in I.N. Vaughn Export Stemmery in Richmond for six years. The women who worked at Export were among the poorest in the city. They had to wrap themselves in tobacco burlap to stay warm in the winter. Harris had been feuding with an abusive male co-worker since she started. One day in the spring of 1937, she had had enough. When he started shouting, She stunned him by giving him a good tongue-lashing in return. Shocked, he accused her of joining the new union campaign. She hadn't heard about the drive, but immediately started checking around. Harris took 60 of her co-workers to the next meeting of the Tobacco Stemmers and Laborers Industrial Union. Sitting in the front row, when the organizers asked for volunteers, Mama Harris jumped to her feet. She organized 700 of the 1,000 workers at Export. They were ready to act. We called our strike and closed up Export tight as a bass drum, Harris remembered years later. A couple of hundred tried to break our line, but we wasn't giving a dog a bone. The job action worked. After 17 days on strike, the factory owner was forced to bargain. Times certainly changed. Times had changed. Using derogatory language, He reminisced that in the past he would fire a black worker just for coming into his office. Now the workers had an eight-hour day and the right to collective bargaining. Also important was the work of the Southern Negro Youth Congress, particularly its leadership, James E. Jackson and C. Columbus Alston. 
Jackson was an early pioneer of the civil rights movement and a leader of the Communist Party. He co-founded the CIO Tobacco Workers Organizing Committee, where Harris worked to organize other tobacco workers across Richmond. Together, they mobilized the entire African-American community, wedding workers' rights with civil rights, and coupled it with black-white unity. White women, workers in the CIO's clothing and textile workers' union, walked the picket line in support of the striking tobacco workers, shocking, segregated Richmond society. Longtime labor organizer Bill Fletcher wrote a book on this period, The Indispensable Ally, Black Workers, and the Formation of the CIO, with Peter Agard. Through the work of the CIO and SNYC, workers became transformed through the process of building the union. The movement helped to lay the groundwork for the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. Many of those civil rights leaders, like E.D. Nixon, a behind-the-scenes leader of the Montgomery bus boycott, had experience in the great union organizing drives of the 30s and 40s. And that is our story for today. For the Passes and Past, I'm Harry Richardson. While the weather today may feel quintessentially Wisconsin, that is, cold and rainy, warm weather is ahead for the Madison area. But with the warm weather comes the beginning of tick season. For more on how to protect yourself and your pets from ticks and the rest of this week's weather forecast, here's weather producer Caitlin Davis. A cold, rainy, windy Monday is opening up for a much nicer week ahead. Current temperatures in Madison are sitting at 48 degrees with cloudy skies and high wind speeds. Winds are blowing at 19 miles per hour, but just like we have seen throughout the day today, the gusts are much higher, exceeding 40 miles per hour. Looking into tonight, there's still a chance for some light rain. Cloudy skies with high wind speeds will be sticking around in the overnight hours, with temperatures looking to hang around in the 40 degrees. A year ago today, the high in Madison, Wisconsin was 54 degrees, and the historical average for May 1st in Madison, Wisconsin is 63.4 degrees. So although we're a bit cool right now, we're moving closer to that average later into the week. The sun is now getting up before most of us do, rising around 5.50 a.m. and not setting until around 7.50 p.m., and days will continue to get longer. It's about time Lake Mendota starts getting warmer, although you should still not swim in it as you could go into shock as the lake is only still 40.6 degrees, but will continue to get warmer as the days get warmer. Pollen counts for the next few days are looking to be in the lower categories in the Madison area. Today, tree pollen is in the moderate category, while grass pollen and ragweed pollen are in the none categories. Tomorrow, tree pollen is looking to move down into the low category, with grass and ragweed pollen still in the low categories. As the weather continues to get warmer and the UV index is going up, be sure to not only protect yourself, but protect your pets as well. When the UV is high, do not leave your pets outside for a long period of time, but if you do, make sure they have a completely covered shaded area. Between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. are the hottest hours of the day, so do not leave your pets outside or unattended as they can have a heat stroke. Protect your pet's feet from the hot pavement by getting them some shoes. Or if your pet doesn't like to wear them, paw wax can be used and even applying Vaseline can help as well. Again, with this warm weather coming up, tick season is approaching and you have to look out for both you and your pets. There are preventative measures for your pets, such as ointments, collar attachments, and much more. To protect yourself while walking in large brushes or even parks, wear long socks and pants and do not brush against any plants. Stay in the center of the trails and make sure your pets do the same. 
After you're done and come back, it is important to inspect yourself and your animal for ticks. Do this before getting inside to prevent any entrance of ticks into your home. If you spot one on you or your animal, it is important to remove them by yourself or by going in. Be sure to use tweezers to remove ticks. Do not burn them off your skin and don't use your fingers. Make sure you get the tick at the tip of its head closest to your skin to ensure the whole bug is out. Thoroughly search yourself and your pet in their ears, between their toes, their tails, and make sure you even move their fur around to spot any underlying ticks as well. If you do get a tick bite, it is important to monitor you and your pet's symptoms for 30 days and go see a doctor if you develop a rash, fever, fatigue, muscle pain, or joint swelling or pain. Ticks are not fun at all, but it is important to protect against them. Back to the weather for the rest of the week. Tuesday is looking to reach a high of 51 degrees with wind speeds blowing between 15 and 25 miles per hour with much higher gusts. Skies will be partly cloudy with a chance of some rain throughout the day. The UV is looking to reach 5 and humidity will be in the 50th percentile. Overnight on Tuesday, temperatures are looking to drop down into the low 30s with a chance of some mixed precipitation. Winds will be holding up high between 10 to 20 miles per hour yet again, even higher wind gusts. Skies will be clear to partly cloudy with humidity in the 60th percentile. And now it's time to make way for Wednesday. Beautiful conditions are looking to make their way on Wednesday with a high of 60 degrees and partly sunny skies. Winds are looking to calm down from the beginning of the week, now blowing between 5 to 10 miles per hour. Humidity is staying low, but the UV will be high. Watch out for the 7 out of 10 on the UV index on Wednesday. Overnight, Wednesday temperatures will drop down into the 30s with light and variable winds. Thursday is the day to get really excited about. A high looking to reach the high 60s with partly sunny skies and you guessed it, light and variable winds. Humidity again staying low, but the UV way up high, again reaching 7. Thursday night is looking to be a bit warmer with temperatures only dropping down to the 40s. Winds will be light and variable. Friday is looking to be beautiful again with a high in the upper 60s and partly sunny skies. The UV is looking to reach 7 yet again. Winds will be blowing a bit faster between 10 to 15 miles per hour and humidity will be in the 40th percentile. With WORT News here in Madison, Wisconsin, I'm your weather producer, Caitlin Davis, and enjoy this beautiful week. Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies on the big screen. First is Renfield, a fun, if too bloody, action comedy horror film with Nicolas Cage as Dracula. Then it's Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, the long-awaited movie based on the Judy Bloom coming-of-age story. Harry says it was worth the wait. Renfield, your sole purpose in life is to serve me. Now, let's eat. I just want a normal life again. That was a clip from the trailer for Renfield, a new comedy horror action film directed by Chris McKay. Robert Kirkman had the story idea and Ryan Ridley wrote the script. This was a fun, over-the-top movie starring Nicholas Holt as Robert Montague Renfield. Dracula is familiar. Familiar as someone who is bonded to Dracula to do his bidding in exchange for eternal life. Here, Renfield, also to better serve his master, is given a small measure of Dracula's power. In this case by, I'm not kidding, ingesting bugs. Dracula is played by Nicholas Cage, as a reviewer of the London Independent says, 
Cage was born to play a vampire. In a recent interview with Stephen Colbert, Cage talks enthusiastically about the role and what influenced his take on the Lord of Darkness. He steals every scene he's in, but the story is told from Renfield's point of view with a lively narration by Holt. This compact movie, 93 minutes, doesn't waste any time and puts us in the middle of the action. Renfield has come to modern-day New Orleans, to a poor side of town, in an eerie secluded basement to restore a recently defeated and depleted Dracula. This is part of a long pattern between the two. Dracula feasts on innocent victims, but then has to leave quickly before a discovery. He is in a vastly depleted, almost skeletal form for the film's early scenes. It seems that Dracula's funds are momentarily depleted, hence their humble hiding place. Renfield, meanwhile, falls in with a self-help group for those in codependent relationships. He uses the group, no, not as victims, but to take out the people who are victimizing them. Renfield, not only sympathizes with these people, but begins to identify their problem as his. After all, he does have the worst boss ever, and he certainly is dependent on him. Gathering these bad guys for his boss brings in bodies somehow not to Dracula's liking. Renfield also runs afoul of the local drug lord's operation, run by a surprisingly scary Shore Adoshlu and her arrogant son, Ben Schwartz. Renfield takes out several small-time dealers in his effort to help free one of his friends from codependency. This puts traffic cop Rebecca Quincy Equifina on his tail, but he ends up helping her out at a local dive bar where they fight off seemingly everyone in the bar. Rebecca calls him a hero, and he likes the sound of that. Eventually, he decides to break with Dracula, with predictable results. All in all, a fun, over-the-top movie that sadly becomes too bloody about two-thirds of the way through. You'll know it when you get there, but it has a satisfying ending. Up next, a much different comedy based on a much-loved children's book. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. I'm here to speak to you today about your changing body. The blood is released through the vagina. That was a clip from the trailer for Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, written and directed by Kelly Freeman Craig. It's based on the YA book of the same name by Judy Bloom. The story seems to stay pretty close to the source material. This is a funny, moving, well-written film with a great cast that is laugh-out-loud funny in spots. The story is set in 1970. Almost 12-year-old Margaret, a pitch-perfect Abbey writer, Fortson, herself 13 when the movie was made. As the movie opens, Margaret is enjoying the last day of summer camp. She happily returns home, but her happiness ends abruptly. Her parents, Mom, Barbara, Rachel McAdams, and Dad, Herb, Benny, Shafty, try to give her the news gently, but a grandma, the great Kathy Bates, blurts it out, you're moving to New Jersey. Her dad has gotten a promotion, and they have bought a house. Her mom, a little ambiguously, says she's quit her job to spend more time with her. Margaret doesn't want to go, of course, but has little choice setting up the main narrative of the story. She storms off to her room and in desperation starts her first prayer. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. She begs God to somehow stop this terrible event. She doesn't want to leave her school, her friends, and her grandma. She ends up with one of the movie's great lines. Don't let New Jersey be too horrible. Soon, they are in a roomy, comfortable house with a big lawn. Margaret's new neighbor, classmate, comes by, Nancy Wheeler, Ellie Graham. Nancy enrolls Margaret in her secret club with two other girls, Jamie Loomis, Amarie Price, and Gretchen Potter, Catherine Kupferer, and things seem off to a good start. The girls are sharing crushes and anxieties. When will they fill out their training bras? When will they get their first kiss, their first period, and so forth? The whole film is just wonderfully done with a fine cast, especially Abby Ryder, 
Fortson. Also playing key roles, Rachel McAdams and the always great Kathy Bates. I highly recommend it. Are You There, God? Just started playing last weekend in local theaters. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your reporter was Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Douglas Hayes with The Public Affair, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Our radio personality of the year, Victor Calzoni, engineered the show. Nate Wiggy helped produce this newscast, and Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Gene Delcourt. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Have a great night.